Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Law School Lounge, a Carolina Academic Press production. This is your host, Crystal Norton. If you spend time with us in the lounge, you will hear discussions on everything law, ranging from pivotal legal issues or emerging areas of law to improvements for legal education and advice for law students. Whether you're a law student, law faculty, or a person who is just otherwise interested in law, you have a place here at the Law School Lounge. So come hang out with us for a while. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for being here with me today at the Law School Lounge. We are here today to discuss election law. And we are so fortunate that two scholars at the very forefront of this area of law were able to join me in a discussion that took some look at historical aspects related to election law, but also some current issues or current changes within the field of election law. So a big thank you to both Dean Dan Takaji of the University of Wisconsin Law School and Professor Nick Stephanopoulos of Harvard Law School for joining me in this discussion. I learned so much from our discussion, and it really made me think a lot about the different components that make up election law. Don't worry, one of the very first things we talk about in this episode is what constitutes election law to begin with. But it's important that I started thinking about these things, and I think it's important that anyone who is able to vote and participate in our political system here in the United States to begin thinking about a lot of the different components that we'll talk about today. For example, we talk about the right to vote. We talk about districting and gerrymandering and how it might be made obsolete in the future or what could curb those practices. We also talk about why those practices are problematic and how this practice aligns or contradicts the founding concepts of our government and political system. We even take a moment to touch upon the Electoral College. We do cover a lot of ground. And all of these topics, as well as other issues within election law, are covered in the book Election Law, Cases and Materials, now in its seventh edition here at Carolina Academic Press. Dan Takaji and Nick Stephanopoulos are joined by two other co-authors, Daniel Lowenstein and Rick Hassan, both of UCLA Law. It's important to note that even though Rick Hassan could not join us for our episode, he has a wealth of materials available online related to current goings-ons in the world of election law. You can check out electionlawblog.org. It will be linked below in the description for you. Also, you'll find on the Election Law blog, Rick Hassan's podcast that has a lot of really great interviews and very great analyses of the types of issues we only are able to briefly touch upon in this episode. At the very tail end of our discussion, Dan and Nick both mention Rick's work, and so I wanted to be sure to share it up front so that you are aware of a very easy way to continue to grow your knowledge and your understanding of election law and all of its really complicated but really important issues. And so thank you again to my guests for joining me in this conversation, and I hope you listeners take something away from it.
Hello, everyone. This is your host, Crystal Norton, and today I am joined by Dean Dan Takaji and Professor Nick Stephanopoulos, and we are here to talk about election law. And as you can imagine, that's quite the big topic, but you two have found yourselves at the center of writing a casebook with us and writing many articles and becoming scholars on this topic. So just to get us started, would you both mind telling us a little bit about what election law covers and how you found yourself working in scholarly writing in this area? Nick, do you want to start? Sure. Uh, so I guess election law, I think of as uh, the field that covers all the different ways in which law structures uh, elections and the political process writ large. And so that includes the voting process, but it also includes uh, how votes are aggregated into legislative seats. So it includes uh, topics like redistricting and trying to avoid the uh, dilution of the influence of racial groups or sometimes partisan groups. Then political parties are uh, critical actors in our political system. And so election law includes the, the governmental regulation of, uh, of parties. And then campaigns for office are another major part of our political system. And so campaign finance, money in politics, is one more major election law topic. There are more, but that's a, a little snapshot of some of the main fields covered by election law. I guess as my own trajectory into the field, uh, I've always been interested in American politics, but also democratic theory and uh, empirical social science. And within the, the legal universe, election law is the field that sort of brings together those different strands. We think about the, the operation of American democracy underlying a lot of election law are important democratic values that animate a lot of participants in, in these debates. And then election law is very attentive to what the real world consequences are of different regulatory choices. Uh, and so my, my empirical social science interest also finds an outlet in election law because the, the consequences of election rules matter a lot for, for people in this area. So you like math? And statistics is what I <laughs> one of the things I got away from that. And I will say there aren't a ton of areas of law that combine those. So it sounds like you found the right one for you. Yeah. So, sometimes doing the math myself, more often relying on on others, you know, on political okay. scientists without the statistical work. Sure. Well, because I, I remember reading in the book that you wrote an article on sort of quantifying with redistricting sort of the balance between the districts and the makeups of the districts and that you've actually proposed a way to quantify that. Is that true? Or yeah, that's, that, 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 that's one quantitative uh, piece of work that I've done. So proposing uh, a particular uh, quantitative measure of partisan bias from districting. And, and I was also involved not just as a scholar, but also as a lawyer uh, offering that, that metric uh, in a couple of court cases. Uh, so yeah, that, that's, that's one area where I haven't just relied on the, empir the empirical work of others, I've done some empirical work myself too. Incredible. My hat's off to you. I give you all the credit. <laughs> and Dan, please, if you would tell us a little bit about your history and, and any thoughts you have about the just the general construct of election law. Well, sure. I, I'll first say that um, Nick's work on the efficiency gap of means by which to measure 
partisan gerrymandering has been incredibly influential in the field. And even though I, I know it's something we're going to talk about later, the Supreme Court has decided to stay out of that area. Uh, we're seeing lots of partisan gerrymandering litigation, which relies on that and other measures in state courts. But just to take a step back on election law, you know, it's really interesting, Crystal. When I was a law student a long time ago now, 30 years ago, election law wasn't really a field, or at least we didn't really think of it as a field. Although some of the components of it that Nick alluded to earlier certainly existed and had a reasonably well-developed body of case law, like uh, vote dilution under the Voting Rights Act and campaign finance regulation. Um, the first edition of our case law, Election Law Cases and Materials, was published by Dan Lowenstein in the 90s. It was the first election law case book. Uh, and Dan was, was in, he, it remains one of the pioneers in the field, bringing these various areas together. And as Nick alluded to a moment ago, I, I, I think of the field of election law as more or less comprising four major areas. One of them, and the field in which I've done most of my work, election administration, right? So that includes how registration lists are maintained, the laws governing such things as voting technology and voter identification, a subject that has been really contentious over the last 15 years or so, provisional voting, absentee and early voting, which has expanded dramatically over the years, and and, and the rules governing those processes. That's that's one area, election administration. A second area is rep representation and districting, right? How district lines are drawn or how uh, power is otherwise distributed and allocated. And that certainly includes the subject of gerrymandering. A third is the regulation of political parties, which includes both the rights that political parties have, which includes rights to freedom of association under the First Amendment of the United States Constitution, as well as the obligations that parties have. For example, the obligation to avoid racial discrimination, which has been deemed a constitutional obligation applicable to political parties. And then fourth and finally, the area of money in politics, uh, including campaign finance regulation, how the flow of money into and through political campaigns and other entities that might want to influence election campaigns can be regulated, where there are also significant concerns under the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. So I appreciate the very first section that you brought up in particular, because I just re-registered to vote. <laughs> so I, I just moved and I just transferred over my license and everything. And as you were talking about that, I, I was thinking, you know, there are just so much sort of intersections here that it's it's an area of law that people don't realize how much on a regular basis it impacts them, right? I think it's definitely an area of law, particularly for law students, where they can see an immediate connection to them and everyone else, right? right? And there aren't a whole lot of areas of law where that connection is immediately apparent. And we're going to, as you mentioned, we're going to talk about some of these major areas that you've brought up and dive a little deeper into them. 
And I can't wait to hear what y'all have to say, because a lot of these topics are really current, right? These topics are things that are being talked about in our news cycles. We have an election for the president, obviously, coming up in the relatively near future. And so more relevant than ever, right? With that being said, I took a look at the first chapter in the casebook, and it took me back to the Federalist Papers, which I have to say, it's been a minute since I've picked those up. <laughs> but the very first Federalist Paper that is listed in the book, anyway, by Madison, it is wild how on point and relevant it is to so many of the things we see going on today. And obviously the chapter progresses and there's a discussion of pluralism and what that means. So would either or both of you mind kind of talking about the evolution of these concepts and, and kind of what they look like in today's democracy? Sure. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll start. So you're referring to Federalist 10. Yes. Um, authored by James Madison. Uh, I'm sitting here speaking to you from Madison, Wisconsin, as it happens right True. here. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, Federalist Papers number 10, one of the most famous, talks about faction, which uh, Madison defines as a number of citizens, whether amounting to a majority or minority of the whole, who are united and actuated by some common impulse of passion or of interest adverse to the rights of other citizens or to the permanent and aggregate interests of the community. So, you know, if you read through Federalist 10, Madison seems to talk about faction as this necessary evil. And fast forwarding well over 200 years to today, we definitely see faction as a as a major element in our politics that that citizens are often united by common impulses that are frequently hostile to other citizens. Now, you know, you might think of pluralism as turning this recognition of faction as a necessary evil into something good, or at least something that can be built on. Pluralism recognizes, first of all, that we as human beings are groupish, right? Especially when it comes to our politics, we tend to engage through groups, whether they be groups defined by race or ethnicity or religious belief or political parties, uh, which have become a really important part of our identities in contemporary democracy in the United States and elsewhere. So, you know, pluralism recognizes that human beings are groupish and moreover that a society like ours is inevitably composed of people with very different perspectives and often clashing ideals of what is right and what is good. And, and that democracy is the means through which we work out these differences and and ideally come uh, come to some sort of compromise about what policies should be enacted and, and what our government should do. Now, of course, it doesn't always work out that way in the ideal and the political polarization and, and, and sometimes the gridlock that we see in contemporary politics is sort of the downside of pluralism. But I'll, I'll sort of stop there and I'm sure we'll have more opportunity to talk about that later in this conversation, Crystal. I mean, I could throw a few more points also about about pluralism. Uh, 
one is that I, I kind of see Madison in uh, Federalist Number Ten as a, a proto-pluralist. Uh, you know, making this argument that uh, he he hopes he predicts that because of the the sheer size of the American Republic, no single faction, no single group will be able to you know take over, hijack uh, the whole apparatus. Instead, we'll have an interplay, uh, sort of continuous negotiation process between different groups. And uh, from that repeated interplay, something pretty good will emerge. Uh, you know, something that's a, a pretty good match for the the aggregate public interest of uh, of all Americans. So, in the twentieth century, a whole bunch of political science thinkers basically echoed that argument of uh, of Madison's and argued that, in fact, pluralism was working pretty well in maybe early and mid 20th century America. And so we have kind of a revival of Madisonian thinking about the, the interplay of different groups 200 years or so after Madison himself uh, wrote uh, The Federalist Number 10. More recently, there's maybe been uh, some more skepticism about pluralism. Uh, you know, people have realized that uh, not all groups are fighting on a level playing field. There's some groups with more resources, more sort of a, of a concentration of assets. You hear them thinking of um, corporations, wealthy individuals, and then you have other groups that are more diffuse, uh, you know, consumers in general, voters in general. Mm-hmm. And so was, you know, some modern skeptics worry that uh, instead of sort of unbiased pluralism, we get, you know, tilted or skewed or distorted pluralism, uh, where where some groups tend to win more often than uh, than others. And so I think that, you know, briefly is how I think about the intellectual history of pluralism, starting with Madison, really flowering in the mid twentieth century, but in the late twentieth century, uh, coming under some attack, as people have realized that uh, there are, you know, skews and distortions to how the pluralist political process operates. Well, thank you both for sort of that overview and that context, because I think it paints a very important picture of how a lot of the things that were playing out during the times of these original writings and concept creation that we've discussed are impacting or coming to fruition or being seen today. But there is this one part in Federalist Number 10 that when I read it, I thought, wow, that sounds very much like something someone would say today, probably not using the same language, of course, but very similar. And so he says, so strong is this propensity of mankind to fall into mutual animosities that where no substantial occasion presents itself, the most frivolous and fanciful distinctions have been sufficient to kindle their unfriendly passions and excite their most violent conflicts. And when I read that, I thought, hmm, that sounds kind of like a lot of rhetoric and conversation that's happening today. And one of the reasons why I wanted to quote that, too, is even though that concept sounds familiar to me for lots of different reasons, I have a question for you both related to sort of the arena we're in, right? So the fight and the issues sound the same. But I don't think Madison, of course, at the time of this writing, could have ever anticipated things like TikTok, the internet, social media, the 24-hour news cycle, mass media. How do you think those factors are contributing to this age-old sort of concept, whether through 
Madison's construct in Federalist Paper Number Ten, or through this concept of pluralism. Yeah, well, it's a it's a fascinating question, and you, you read those words of Madison, and and boy, he sounds incredibly foresightful in that um, about our politics nowadays. Yeah. And you know, he was living in a world where people would you know read pamphlets on the street, or you might have someone giving a speech on a street corner. Nowadays, uh, you know, you get on your phone and and click and uh, you can send out a tweet or an X or whatever it might be called these days that can literally reach millions of people around the world. And, you know, it often seems as though it's the most inflammatory posts that tend to get the most play and the ones that are often the most bilious or 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 most insulting that 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 get the widest audience and and so i think you know if if we i i always am leery of attempts to get in the minds of the framers and to envision what they would say about today because the world is so far beyond what they could have imagined even someone with the foresight that that madison had and the understanding i think of human nature that he had um but I, I I do think that the concern that that you mentioned and that you quoted Madison on the concern about about faction and the ability of people to inflame passions uh, against a group that is different in one way or another those concerns are more alive today than they have been. Uh, at any point in our history, in part because of the rise and proliferation of social media. Yeah, I guess I'll just throw in that uh, I think Madison was on to really an, an eternal truth, which is that human political organizations are rarely just you know harmonious and, and cooperative. There, there's divisiveness, there's fractiousness in in almost every uh, you know jurisdiction in every period that you look at. And so certainly, you know, modern America, modern politics around the world is is full of divisions. But, you know, one could have said something similar before the first or before the Second World War, around the time of the Civil War, in, in many other different eras. So so in my mind, the you know, the jury is still out as to whether social media and uh, artificial intelligence and, and other developments like that will really make a dramatic difference for sort of human political society. They they might. But but I don't think we have really you know proof of that and and uh, you know just showing that there's uh, you know some polarization some division uh, being fomented by by these technologies mm-hmm. that's not enough to prove the point to me because we've always had polarization and, and divisiveness in in human politics. No, you both raise obviously very great points and and thank you for indulging me and in answering my question. I just. You know, and I didn't even think of AI, Nick, when you said that. I was like, oh, yeah, that's another one. I think part of it is just, too, it's also new, right? And it's all changing so quickly that there's just no way for us to really gather enough information yet to sort of see the effects and the impacts, right? All of these other things that we're talking about happened over the course of decades uh, and hundreds of years in some instances, whereas this is the last two decades and we're all still living in it, right? So it just looks a little bit different. But... Obviously, when we're talking about republics, whether we're talking about them through the lens of Madison or we're talking about them in pluralism, centric to all of this is the right to vote. And I know that's something that you both have mentioned. Why do you feel that the right to vote is so important? And how has this right evolved throughout U.S. history? 
maybe I'll start by quoting a Supreme Court case that is the first one to talk about the right to vote is a is a fundamental right. Yuko versus Hopkins, ironically, a case that didn't actually involve voting itself, but in that case, the court said the right to vote is regarded as fundamental because it is preservative of all rights. And the, the court has frequently repeated that in the well over a century since then. Um, and, and, you know, the basic idea is that none of our other interests are safe unless we're able to exercise the right to vote and able to exercise it on equal terms with our fellow citizens. And that's not just a hypothetical, because we look at what happened in the succeeding decades, indeed, what was in already starting to happen in the South at the time those words were written, African Americans were being disenfranchised en masse throughout the states of the South and would not uh, gain or regain their ability to effectively exercise the vote for the most part until the second half of the 20th century. And what happened when Af during this long period where when African Americans were stripped of their constitutional right to vote? Well, what happened is that all of their other rights, be it to education or employment or access to public accommodations or anything else, were also systematically denied to them. And that was in large measure because of not only uh, often violent racism, but because of the denial of their right to vote. Um, and let me offer, a, I guess, a more theoretical perspective on voting, uh, which, which stems from a book that I'm working on, on uh, what I call alignment uh, as an organizing principle of, of election law. So by, by alignment, I mean that uh, what the government does is basically congruent with what people want the government to do. So, you know, representation, policy, uh, reflect people's preferences. And so voting from, from an alignment perspective is a very, very powerful aligning mechanism. It's maybe the most important reason why we have uh, you know, decent and not awful levels of alignment in, in democratic societies. And so there are two ways that uh, voting is a tool to, uh, to promote alignment. One is that by voting, voters can select politicians whose uh, platforms, whose views are closer to those of the voters. And so voting is a, a selection mechanism through which voters can select more aligned over less aligned politicians. And then voting is also a, uh, a measure of, or tool for accountability. Uh, so once politicians have been in office, voters can use the vote to uh, reward politicians who have done things that the voters uh, wanted and to punish, to oust politicians who have done things the voters didn't want. And so I think, you know, to, to a large degree, when we see the government sometimes doing things that people want, it's because of these two faces of voting, you know, these, these two ways in which voting can uh, encourage and, and push us toward uh, a more aligned political system. I appreciate speaking with you both at the same time because Dan provides a very great historical lens and Nick, you're providing a really wonderful theoretical lens and together it's it's just wonderful. I can see why the book that y'all have written together with obviously other co-authors is so well balanced. <laughs> uh, and and for what it's worth, I, I recently met with another author of ours, Renetta Mack, and it's we talked about jury systems in the U.S. 
And a lot of the cases that were in her book compared the right to being on a jury or participation in a jury with the right to vote. And essentially, those cases, many of them Supreme Court cases, came down to the idea that both are that participatory element. They allow people to actually engage with the system in a way that most other rights are more protective or don't allow for engagement. And that seems like it's a theme that's kind of running throughout both of of the things that you have all discussed here. Now, obviously, voting rights is a news headline in a lot of ways. We hear about that a lot. So what are kind of some of the most important issues we're seeing today, or what are the biggest legal concerns, sources of litigation maybe that are out there related to voting rights right now? Yeah, I can, I can jump in here. So it, we're, we're living in an interesting period in that we're seeing more polarization over voting issues than we have in, in recent decades. Uh, so, you know, on, on the bright side, we're seeing uh, some jurisdictions, some states making voting easier than ever before. So if you look at, you know, a bunch of, of blue states largely, we now have initiatives like automatic voter registration or same day voter registration. Uh, so it's easier than ever before in these places for somebody to get on the, the voter rolls. We've also seen a big rise in convenience voting, uh, some modes of voting other than casting uh, a ballot in person on Election Day. Now, numerous states offer weeks of uh, early in-person voting or uh, mail-in voting. And so you know, there, there's really no comparison in a place like California or Colorado in voting today versus voting 30 years ago. It's much, much easier to vote today in, in some of these places. On the other hand, at the same time that that's going on, we're also seeing attacks on voting in, in, in many states um, as well. So taking the form of uh, photo ID requirements for voting, limits on voter registration drives, cutbacks to whatever convenience voting previously existed, you know, the creation of uh, police forces to, to monitor non-existent voting fraud. And so it's very interesting that, uh, you know, I, I think from the, um, the 60s to maybe 2000 or 2010, the whole country kind of ebbed and flowed together with respect to voting. But since 2000 or 2010, we've really seen this division and so now there are probably more dramatic differences in voting from state to state than than we've seen since the the end of the Jim Crow era. Uh, so I think that to me that's the most dramatic development with respect to voting in kind of recent American politics. Is that all? <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, you know, I lived in a what you would call, I guess, a blue city in a red state. And when that happens, particularly when it's something like this, it it's a really odd experience in the sense that, you know, I I did local elections. I voted. My polling station was right by my house, which was great. But there was definitely a shift over time of, you know, what the poll workers could do, what the polling station looked like, accessing it, and so on. But it was just odd because a lot of the things that maybe were concerning in other areas of the state weren't necessarily concerning where I was located or vice versa. And so it's a really weird dichotomy that's happening right now because it can really vary, like you said, 
city to city, state to state. Um, and so is there any way to, I guess, be involved in that if you have any strong feelings about it? How are people impacting things that much? Is it mostly happening on a local level? Is it mostly happening on a state level? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, one of the things I often say about how election administration operates in the United States, which is really different from other countries, is that here in the United States, election administration is primarily a matter of state law and local practice, right? So it's it's mostly state law that governs things uh, like the like the areas that Nick was just mentioning, you know, how voter registration operates, what the rules for absentee and early voting are, what kind of voter identification you're required to show when you go to the polls or otherwise cast your ballot. Uh, these are mostly a matter of state law. And uh, as he also described in states that are blue, those rules have tended to get more liberal over the years, uh, making it easier to access the ballot and effectively exercise your right to vote. Um, on the other hand, in states that are more red, we've seen, at least in many of those states, the rules getting stricter in terms of voter identification, sometimes voter registration and the ability to cast a ballot before Election Day as well. And, it, you know, it's uh, it's interesting because there are, as you alluded to, Crystal, there are a lot of Democrats, especially in urban areas in predominantly red states. And on the other hand, there are also a lot of Republicans, uh, usually in rural and other less populated areas in predominantly blue states who may not agree with the rules that are adopted at the state level. I mean, there's some room for variation in local implementation. But on the other hand, uh, every admitted elections are mostly run at the local level, at the county or in some states like mine, Wisconsin, at the municipal level. But those local election officials have to follow the rules that are made at the state and the federal level. And let, let me just mention one other thing under the heading of voting rights, something that has become increasingly important since the 2020 election. It's not just what rules govern the voting process, but also who's running elections. Mm -hmm. That's become incredibly controversial. You know, most states still have a partisan election official. That is an official who was elected as a candidate of one major party or the other who is primarily responsible for overseeing elections at the state level. And there are also party-affiliated election officials at the local level in, in many states, too. And, um, you know, this presents a concern. It is part, I think, of what has been fueling this uh, this anxiety about whether elections are run in an impartial manner in many states. And, of course, we've seen attacks on a lot of hardworking and very conscientious election officials over the last several years that I fear will only amplify in the years to come. So who runs elections is as important a question as what are the rules governing those elections? So who and how? Got it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, since we're talking about, you know, who's doing what and how it's happening, I know a big question that many people have in relation to elections specifically right now 
is who's drawing districts and how does it happen, right? So how are legislative districts supposed to be drawn? How are they actually drawn? These are two obviously counterposing things, I'd imagine, but please enlighten well, us. <laughs> Nick's, Nick's the country's leading expert on this subject, so I'll let him take this one. I'm, I'm grateful for that, Dan. Thanks a lot. Uh, you know, so, so in theory, districting can be an incredibly powerful mechanism for furthering a bunch of different democratic goals, right? So ma many people are drawn to an idea that uh, each district should have a, a coherent identity corresponding to a particular uh, geographically rooted community. And so if you like that idea, then uh, districts that are carefully drawn to correspond to meaningful spatial communities can be a really great way of providing for community voice within the legislature. And then many other people are also drawn to various uh, ideas of fairness at the legislative level. They want a legislature whose uh, partisan composition reflects the partisan views of uh, voters across the, the jurisdiction. Or they want a legislature where uh, racial and, and ethnic groups have a significant voice. You know, their, their uh, voice is not diluted by how district lines are drawn. So in the hands of a sort of beneficent line drawer, you could use districting to do all these things, to draw you know, districts that correspond to meaningful communities, and that in the aggregate provide for partisan fairness uh, and also for uh, significant racial and ethnic representation. In practice, you very often see the opposite of all of that. So, you know, in, in practice, in most American jurisdictions, uh, you have self-interested politicians who are doing the line drawing as opposed to some sort of beneficent line drawer. And the interests of politicians are quite different from the democratic interests of the polity as a whole. And so with politician-led redistricting, you see rampant partisan gerrymandering, you know, benefiting one party at the expense of another. You see a systematic effort to suppress competition because there's, you know, there's nothing sitting office holders like less than uh, competitive races in their districts. Because race is an important political cleavage in America, you also see efforts to suppress uh, the representation typically of uh, historically disadvantaged racial and, and ethnic groups. And so in the hands of uh, insiders with their own motives, you see redistricting not as a tool for furthering a whole cluster of democratic values, but kind of as the opposite, a really powerful mechanism for subverting a lot of the things that we want our democracy to achieve. So I think, you know, more often than not, that's kind of the grim reality of, of American redistricting today, that uh, you know, what could be a powerful force for good is, is all too often a, a powerful force for democratic subversion rather than democratic promotion. And if I could just add one point to Nick's excellent explanation, one of the things that's been really interesting over the last several years is this increasing public awareness of and attention to gerrymandering, right? And let me just share some personal experience on this. You know, I was involved in a ballot initiative campaign back in 2012 uh, in my former state of Ohio, which is historically one of the worst gerrymandered 
states and the countries by, by at least many measures. And, you know, we were trying to raise public consciousness of this issue. And this isn't that long ago, just about 11 years ago. But we would have to explain to people what redistricting was, what gerrymandering was. You know, we'd start talking about districts. People would think we're talking about school districts. If you flash forward to today, you see that there is a much greater public awareness of how the redistricting process works and how it actually affects all of our interests, how it, in my opinion, skews representation, results in policies that are not in alignment, to use Nick's phrase, with, with what people actually believe or want from their government. And admittedly, you know, I'm in Madison, Wisconsin, which is not exactly typical, but I go around today in my neighborhood and I see lots of signs uh, in front of people's houses that say end gerrymandering, which you just would never have seen, at least so commonly, uh, 10 or 11 years ago. And, and, you know, we actually have seen some action, especially in state courts under state constitutions in terms of trying to rein in, in some instances, successfully efforts at partisan gerrymandering and also through ballot initiatives like ones in Arizona and in California that have put some limits on the ability of line drawers to draw lines that vastly favor one side or the other. So, okay, lots to unpack there, but we'll just start with if you're talking about sort of these systems that people are trying to either force into alignment or seeking alignment, right? Or we have gerrymandering concerns uh, together with those other components. What in the way the system is created allows people to do that, right? So what about the way the system works makes gerrymandering effective or an option? Yeah, so it's really two things, I think. Uh... One is, you know, who does the district drawing? And two is, uh, what are the rules for the district drawing? So in principle, either one of those could be a lever for stopping gerrymandering. You could either entrust redistricting to uh, somebody other than politicians with no incentive to gerrymander, or you could leave Weber's in charge to stay in charge, but impose really strict rules on what they do with the line drawing. To, to prevent you know distortions and skews, and so the reason we see gerrymandering you know in many places today is because neither one of those tools is being used in many states. So in many states, the legislature, you know, the self-interested politicians of the legislature are the ones who do redistricting, just like they're the ones who pass any other generic piece of legislation. Uh, and then also, most states don't have laws on the books, criteria on the books that rigorously uh, try to stop or prevent uh, gerrymandering. Some states do, but in the typical state, there's there's no provision saying that uh, partisan intent or, par or, or large partisan effects are, uh, are prohibited. Uh, and so in the absence of that kind of prohibition and with the power to draw the district lines in the first instance, we see the opportunity created for, for rampant gerrymandering. And... I, it's my understanding that some states have decided to kind of pull one of these levers that you're talking about, particularly when it comes to commissions. And how is that going? What does that look like? Are more states maybe leaning towards going that route in order to curb these issues? 
Yeah, this has been a major trend. So uh, in the last decade plus, some important places like California and New York and Michigan have all adopted independent commissions uh, for the first time. Congress came awfully close to mandating the use of independent commissions for congressional redistricting in, in some bills that were considered in 2021 and 2022. And so, you know, Commissions are sort of like the, the the generic worldwide solution to the problem of gerrymandering. Lots of other democracies used to have problems with gerrymandering. And then at some point, you know, Canada, Britain, Australia, and, and so on, uh, all switched to a commission model. And that's largely ended the problem of gerrymandering uh, in, in those countries. In America, there's some really promising evidence that, especially in the current cycle, in which there's been more attention than ever before to the partisan effects of redistricting, that commissions have really done a superb job. Uh, so there's a recent paper by uh, some political scientists that uh, compares the partisan biases of Democratic maps, Republican maps, and commission-drawn maps. And, and this paper finds that using several different measures of, of partisan bias, commission plans on average are close to zero, close to perfect in their average partisan fairness. Wow. It wasn't necessarily like this in prior decades when people weren't as focused on the partisan effects of redistricting. But in the 2020s, the record of commissions has been kind of remarkable in the U.S. No, that's super interesting. I haven't lived in a state where commissions are an option or that they exist. And so I hadn't really heard much about them or thought much about them. But that's really interesting to hear like the update, because that was one question I had. I was like, how is it going in places where they're giving this a try? Is it is it promising? Because, you know, obviously, as you both mentioned, this is at the forefront of a lot of people's mind and more people are talking about it now than ever. So it makes sense now to kind of make those changes. I did want to also ask or bring up sort of the bedrock here of why districting or redistricting really came up in terms of judicial opinions is through this one person, one vote concept, right? This idea that states need to have districts that to some degree facilitate one person, one vote. How does that factor into sort of the landscape today? And then after that, I also want to ask a quick question about the Electoral College. Sure. So I, I'll, I'll try a brief answer to that question. So, you know, there's there's kind of the doctrinal answer to the question about one person, one vote. And then there's the broader social meaning of that term. Right. On a doctrinal level, one person, one vote is, is the legal doctrine that legislative districts have to be of approximately equal size, pretty close to uh, in size. I mean, in terms of population. Right. So pretty close to precise numerical equality when it comes to congressional districts. There's some greater latitude to depart from precise numerical equality with respect to state and local legislative districts. But that's the basic idea. Of course, that term one person, one, one vote is used by ordinary people who aren't election law professors has a different and broader meaning. It's, it's come to symbolize this basic notion that our votes should be equal, that we should all have an equal say in our democracy. And of course, the reality often departs quite quite dramatically from that ideal. But it is, um, to, to borrow a phrase from uh, a somewhat infamous Supreme Court opinion, 
uh, in some circles, Bush versus Gore, the idea that every vote is entitled to equal weight and every voter to equal dignity. Speaking of the Electoral College <laughs> with Bush yeah. versus Gore. Um, so, yeah, Mike, yeah. so I was just reading through everything that you had. And thank you so much for sort of putting the context there. I kept reading that in these cases, they were like, yes, the states want to equate the system they're creating with the federal system, but they aren't supposed to do that. States are supposed to do the one person, one vote, and that they have very specific criteria or functions that they need to serve. And it just seemed very, I guess, for lack of a better word, hypocritical that they were putting sort of this all of this conversation on the majority and the majority should have the carrying weight and so on in these case opinions. But yet at the federal level, admittedly different, we have the Electoral College, which as in the election with uh, President Bush versus Gore, you know, Gore had the popular vote and Bush won the election. So how do these things sort of shake out or how does the Electoral College fit into all of this discussion about one person, one vote? Yeah, I can jump in here. Right. So there's a real tension because uh, a, a powerful principle of uh, equality is what underpins and, and gives meaning to the, the doctrine of one person, one vote. But then various parts of our federal system are in clear tension with this egalitarian principle. So you, you mentioned the Electoral College, an even more dramatic you know, inegalitarian institution is the Senate, where uh, all states have the same representation regardless of their, their population. So I see the court in the 1960s as basically saying, uh, we think that uh, equality in politics matters a lot, and we're going to insist on this egalitarian principle in the areas that aren't explicitly covered by by contrary federal constitutional text. And so congressional redistricting, state legislative and local redistricting, there's no inegalitarian federal constitutional text with respect to those activities. And so the court was able to uh, endorse one person, one vote in those areas. Uh, I'm sure the Warren court of the 60s disliked the the malapportionment of the Senate and disliked the skews of the Electoral College, but you know maybe rightly didn't feel uh, that uh, this was something a court could challenge, uh, given that uh, you know those unequal features are kind of hardwired into the constitutional text. And thank you for answering that. I think it's just especially as you know, I I think from my understanding, you know, the popular vote hadn't been won by a losing candidate since the 1800s. And obviously it's happened twice in very recent history. And so the Electoral College and, and what it does and how it works is much like gerrymandering, more in parlance with everybody and, and how they're discussing with elections. And so I just wanted to bring that up because I felt like reading these, there was a lot of emphasis on the one person, one vote, particularly in the, the context of the states. And it just seemed, you, you you put it much more eloquently than I did, Nick. There's tension there. Um, I just called them hypocrites, but you called it tension, which is good. Um, I know we only have a few more minutes. So if you wouldn't mind, just real quick, I wanted to touch upon campaign financing. I know that there's a lot to be said for how it's evolved over the years, 
But if you could just quickly touch upon what areas of law or what, I guess, maybe legislation governs campaign financing mostly today and what kinds of issues you think we'll see in the upcoming 2024 presidential election related to campaign financing. Sure. Maybe I can start with just a quick overview of this extraordinarily complex area of election. (laughs) No doubt. It it literally took me many years to just understand how, um, how the system works or doesn't work depending on your perspective. But just to give a a bit of an overview, like the first, there had been some laws restricting campaign finance going back, you know, to the early 20th century. But, um, you know, the first major systemic effort to regulate the flow of money into election campaigns was in the 1970s, and particularly after the Watergate scandal. Um, where uh, Congress enacted the uh, Federal Election Campaign Act Amendments of 1974. Um, and that provided the template for a lot of um, regulations at the state level as well. But there are four basic kinds of regulations in, in that federal legislation. There were expenditure limits, a limit on how much people and entities could spend to influence elections. There were contribution limits, that is, limits on how much could be given by um, individuals or other entities to uh, candidate campaigns. There was public financing, that is, uh, rather than setting a ceiling, raising the floor for qualified candidates so that they would be able to mount effective campaigns. And there were disclosure requirements. And and that's a requirement that people or entities um, report how much they're spending, some of which information is then made publicly available so that voters can be informed about who's spending money and who's receiving money influencing federal elections. So those four forms of regulation, expenditure limits, contribution limits, public financing and disclosure, remain the major forms that exist today. But for a long time, uh, since an opinion decided way back in 1976, a Supreme Court opinion, Buckley versus Vallejo, there have been um, pretty stringent constitutional limits on the regulation of the flow of money into campaigns. The court has long held that both expenditures and contributions enjoy some degree of constitutional protection under the First Amendment, that it is a form of speech and association to spend or give money in collection with election campaigns. Uh, And they've also, the court has also since Buckley, basically taken equality off the table pertaining to our last discussion uh, as a value that can ever justify restrictions on the expenditure of money to influence elections. Um, Buckley famously said the concept that government may limit the speech of some in order to enhance the relative voice of others, that's foreign to our First Amendment. Um, That's a disputed and disputable proposition, but it has, has, for the most part, eliminating a lot of the complexity, been the law for now approaching 50 Years and, and then the Citizens United decision, which came down in 2010, which many viewers and listeners may have heard of, 
um, basically said that corporations, for-profit corporations, have an unlimited First Amendment right to spend money from their treasuries to influence election campaigns, extending that principle from Buckley even further. So we've had a lot of activity over this subject over the over the intervening decades. But, you know, those are the basic lines of argument. On the one hand, uh, the argument for regulation has to do with giving people an equal voice and preventing corruption within our political system. The opposing argument rests mainly, though not exclusively, on freedom of speech and association, the idea that we are expressing ourselves by spending or giving money to our preferred candidates. So does it does that mean you're going to leave to Nick or do would you like to tell us, Dan, what do you think is going to happen next year with campaign finance? <laughs> I'll leave that one. I'll leave the hard question to Nick as I usually try to. <laughs> um, uh, so a couple of thought we one is that, um, you know, because the Supreme Court has decided a bunch of campaign finance cases over the last decade, uh, there's no longer much legal uncertainty. Uh, over a lot of the pillars of, of campaign finance law. Like we all know that um, as much as I or others would love to see, for example, uh, campaign spending limits, they're just not going to fly in any shape or form with, with the Roberts court. And so the, you know, the, the big foundational questions in this area, I think, are, are pretty settled. So that means that um, the, the kinds of legal issues that we might see coming up in 2024 would probably be more over the application of existing campaign finance laws rather than over sort of first principles. So I've seen news reports recently, for example, that the the DeSantis campaign is very closely working with its allied super PAC. Super PACs are supposed to be independent of candidates for office. Uh, and so I could imagine controversy over how independent is independent enough for uh, for a super PAC, and you know is some some campaign uh, breaching the legal boundary by uh, coordinating improperly with its allied super PAC? Beyond the legal issues, to me the the broader phenomenon that we're going to continue to see in 2024 is just the excess influence over our political system of big campaign funders. And this can be a problem in terms of, you know, actual corruption, you know, quid pro quo exchanges, but it's also a bigger problem than that. It, it so happens in, in current American politics uh, that campaign funders tend to be very ideologically extreme, either on the left or on the right. Most ordinary voters are not so ideologically extreme. And so I tend to see the, uh, the, the most pernicious impact of the Supreme Court's decisions and the, the largely unchecked flow of money today in being that um, big campaign funders are able to sway politicians, move politicians toward the ideological fringes, which is not where, uh, where most Americans are. You know, we often talk about uh, polarization in our political system. I see big donors, big spenders as uh, one of the, you know, not, not the only, but one of the drivers of, uh, of that polarization. And so I think beyond any particular legal dispute, 
we're probably going to keep witnessing the uh, enormous influence of big money over our politics, which manifests itself in several ways, one of which is the, the kind of regrettable polarization of modern politics. Well, and I think that brings us full circle because that brings us right back to our quote from Madison about flaming the, uh, you know, fanning the flames of passion and sort of the interest groups and them pulling apart sort of at the seams. And it sounds like we can keep an eye out for that moving forward next year in the election. Well, thank you both so much for being here with me and for teaching me so much in even this short time. I wish I could be in either of your classrooms. It sounds like it would be an incredible experience. And I appreciate you taking the time today. If I could just give you one 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 closing thing for Please. people to be aware of. Please. Um, I can't believe we haven't yet mentioned our fantastic co-author, Rick Hassan. And for those uh, readers or listeners who are really interested in keeping up to date with the latest in election law, you have to regularly take a look at his outstanding election law blog, to which Nick and I sometimes contribute. It is electionlawblog.org. It is must reading for anybody who is interested in the field of election law. He has a podcast as well, too, right? He has everything. And his energy, which he, which he uses to, <laughs> to write about election law, uh, do podcasts, uh, write a, a never-ending series of, uh, of, of articles and, and columns. Uh, so that we're, we're all in awe of, of Rick's uh, productivity. Yeah, and he has a really big social media presence, too, and he's always posting stuff there. So definitely check that out as well. Well, thank you so much for tying that in. I appreciate it. And that closes out our conversation on election law. And to be completely candid, I hope it does not close it out completely. I really hope that both Dan and Nick will find time in the future to come back and join me, especially as the 2024 presidential election approaches. I do want to emphasize that the questions surrounding elections and a lot of the related legal issues or topics that we covered in this episode are not reserved for presidential elections, right? These are things that everyone should be talking about and considering all year round as a regular part of being a contributing component of our government and political system here in the United States. So thank you once again to both Dan and Nick for joining me. I am forever grateful. If you don't already, please be sure to follow us on social media. You'll find us on X and Instagram at Law School Lounge. You can grab a copy of their election law book on our website, cap-press.com. And if you have any recommendations for future episodes, or any kinds of questions, please feel free to touch base with us on social media. We would love to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you next time. Bye.